Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening, and it is Tuesday evening, and that means it's time for another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I don't know what you're doing on this Tuesday evening, but I'm glad you started it off on the right foot by making time to join us here on That's Truth. Maybe you're just listening in. Maybe you'd like to send in a question. I will share that contact information in just a minute. But sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and thank the listeners for allowing us to be in their homes this evening. As I said I would do, I'm going to share this contact information with you. You can go ahead and jot it down so you have it on hand throughout the program. I will share it again throughout the program. But if you would like to call and be put live on the air... The phone line is open and available. This is a live interactive call-in program. And the phone number for you to call is 1-268-462-7420. Live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not call and speak live on the air, that's not a problem. We would love for you to still communicate with us. And there are a number of ways you can do that. You can send your question via WhatsApp or text message to 1-268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Maybe you're not a WhatsApp or text person, but you do use email. You can send your question to crlthatstruth at gmail.com. That's all one word, no space, no apostrophe. C-R-L-T-H-A-T-S-T-R-U-T-H at gmail.com. And the final way that you can interact with us on this program is Facebook. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. You can click on the Facebook Live video feed and then you can comment. You can see behind the scenes what's going on and you can ask your questions in the comment section and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Now, Pastor, before we jump into our topic for tonight, we have several questions that have come in uh, since the program last week or toward the end of the program last week. This one says, Good night, Pastor Murphy. Please answer the following. What is meant by the following phrases? And the first phrase is, God has set eternity in our hearts. Well, I think if you look at Ecclesiastes uh, 3.11, I think there's a reference the person um, is making there. You could probably read that for us, please. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work of God 
that maketh from the beginning to the maketh from the beginning to the end. Yeah, the King James Version has the word world, but if you check any Hebrew lexicon, the real word is eternity. Okay. And if you check all the modern versions, you'll see that they have the that he has set eternity in their hearts. Uh, I think if you're going to understand what is being taught there, you have to look at the context of the passage if you're going to understand the thoughts of the writer. In the previous verses, if you would just read for me verses 1 to 3. Uh, yeah. Uh, starting at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Right. You notice that uh, the writer is talking about the different vicissitudes in life, that everything seems to be changing, and circumstances and events change. It goes from prosperity to adversity, from love to hate, uh, from building to dismantling, from work to pleasure, from isolation and being alone to socializing. So he's really trying to point out that nothing really is permanent. Everything is changing. Uh, the idea of transience is a key concept there. So everything is mutable. But then suddenly he has a thought, a new train of thought, and he begins to understand uh, more clearly that these changing things that might seem contradictory and confusing, yet uh, in God's purpose and God's plan, plan, he times everything. So he's now taking a different dimension to the whole matter, and that even though the things that are happening uh, might seem to be um, different and conflicting, yet in the long term they're cooperative in terms of achieving what God wants to achieve. So these various events that are uh, moving and changing and, and um, um, changeable um, are like cogs in a great machine that achieves a purpose, even though the cogs in the machine at times would seem as though they're antagonistic towards each other and cannot achieve the ultimate purpose, but they work out because God times everything. And then, in contrast to that, he now begins to understand a different aspect to humanity, that this changing world, uh, in this changing world, in contrast, God has uh, implanted in man a sense of his immortality, a sense that there's something eternal. So there's a craving in man for something that is not changing, that's something that is permanent. And that's where he now thought he has set eternity in his heart. So every man, basically, even though he might try to repress his feelings and stifle the fact that there is within him a sense that he was meant to live forever, that is in man and himself. That's something implanted in man by God, so that no matter what a man does, he can't escape the fact that he feels that there's life after death. So that's what he's talking about here, that God has made sure that every human being has got a sense of eternity and eternal in himself, so that when we are witnessing and we are um, uh, to people and we are giving the gospel message. I want to say there's some assets that we always have that we've got to realize that man knows he's a sinner. Uh, man knows he's done wrong, but also man is conscious that there's more to this life than, than what we experience and there's something eternal. That is something that is an asset for us when we're dealing with people and we're trying to bring them to Christ. They might put up a facade, they might blush or brush us off and uh, maybe even laugh us off and, and, and uh, ignore, tend to ignore, but deep on the inside there's this consciousness of eternity and humanity and God has planted that there. So that kind of coincides with the passage in Romans chapter 1, I believe it is, where it says God's given everyone a conscience. Correct, 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 exactly correct. All right. Thank you for, to the individual who sent in that question. And the next question, pastors, can you please explain the phrase might? 
Well, I'm not too sure um, what the person mean by might because it depends on the context of the of the the, is the word used as a verb. Is it used as a, as a noun? If it's used as a verb, it, it, it it's a participle of, of may instead of saying I might do something. Mm-hmm. But I suspect the person is probably looking at it as a noun, and as a noun, uh, it has to do with the matter of superior strength and superior power. Uh, in the scriptures, in the Greek language, the word is dunamis. You find that in Ephesians one twenty-one and Romans one sixteen, and that word dunamis has to do with power and inherent ability. There's another word in the Greek language called ishus, which is found in Ephesians one nineteen and Ephesians six ten, and that has to do with strength and power. So the word might in, in, in the New Testament has to do with strength, power, and might, and that's what it has to deal with. What is meant by the phrase, God is a consuming fire? Again, the expression that the person has mentioned, uh, you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. You might want to just read that for the audience. Hebrews twelve twenty-nine. Yes, please. And that says, for our God is a consuming fire. Yeah. If you read the context of the passage, it talks about the matter of worship so that we reverence God and recognize who God is. Yes, we be very flippant in our in, in our worship, and that means that it will incur the judgment of God because he's a consuming fire. The actual word um, phrase is is found is borrowed from the Old Testament. If you look at Deuteronomy four twenty four. Deuteronomy four twenty four says the following for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Yeah, and if you look at Deuteronomy nine three, you'll find it there again. Understanding there, understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is He which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them, and He shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. Yeah, in both cases, uh, is talking about God's holiness and God's disposition to judge. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, 24, it has to do with idolatry. And uh, Moses is warning the Israelites that if they're going to idolatry, that God will consume them, which means that God will destroy them. Uh, so it has to do with God's judgment. In, in Deuteronomy 9, 3, it's talking about God going on before Israel as they're going to the, the, the promised land, and he will be a, a consuming fire in the sense that he will judge these nations and consume these nations so that Israel will have uh, access and take over the territory. But in every case, it has to do with divine judgment. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it has to do with the matter of proper worship and acknowledging God and reverence for God. And it reminds the believer that God is not only a God of love, he's a God of judgment. And we must not take worship lightly because uh, he can literally destroy not only the pagans, he can also destroy his people as he destroyed the nation Israel. When I say destroy, I don't mean in a sense eternally destroy, but can cause um, great injury and harm to the believer even in his present state, if his worship is inappropriate and he doesn't show the proper reference that is there. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It airs live every Tuesday evening from 7.30 until 9 p.m., and it is a live interactive call-in program. You can call and be put live on the air. You can ask a question. Maybe it's pertaining to life. Maybe it's pertaining to the Bible. Maybe it's something that someone asked you years ago, or maybe someone asked you today in the grocery store. But we would love to be able to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. You can call and be put live on the air by calling one 268 
462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to one 268 782-1454. Pastor, the next phrase that this individual would like explained is, he held his feet to the fire until the preacher die. Um, you know, that, that song was very, <laughs> I must admit it was kind of weird. i uh, never heard that expression before. But, you know, we've heard the expression, holding one's feet to the fire. Yeah. is actually an idiomatic expression that alludes to an ancient practice where you would test the courage of a person to see how long they could put their feet to the fire, or else it had to do with punishment when you keep okay. the person's foot to the... So in a case, in the way it is used um, um, today, it, uh, we really talk about putting pressure on people. So when you put a person's feet to the fire, you're putting pressure on them until they do something in particular. So this particular phrase, he held his feet... Uh, to the fire probably has two meanings. It depends on who the subject is. It could mean that he, the individual, uh, held somebody's uh, under pressure uh, until the desired end that they had, uh, uh, even until the, the preacher died. Now, I'm not sure what they mean by preacher died. Did that mean that the preacher leave, the preacher resigned, uh, the preacher lost his influence, or he literally died? But the whole idea there is keeping pressure on, the, on a person to, to accomplish something that you want until it is done, even if it goes on until the preacher dies. So I would suspect that's referring to holding a person under some kind of pressure to get something done um, uh, until the, the preacher goes or the preacher dies. I would, I would interpret that to mean that. Two more phrases, and then go on to a question from another listener. Explain my feet, your fire. Now, again, if you take the the, the, the idiomatic expression I talked about, that it has to do with putting uh, people under pressure, uh, I would probably assume that uh, the feet there would be the individual who's under pressure and the other person is putting the fire, which would be the pressure on the individual. So my feet, uh, my feet, your, your fire, means that I'm the one enduring the pressure that you're giving to me. That's how you would interpret that particular, uh, that particular phrase. So it really um, has to do with the pressure being put on a person, another person. One person is the, the feet, which is the one who's getting the pressure. The other person, the fire, who's putting the pressure until whatever they want accomplished uh, um, or what, whatever they want done. Can you please explain the fire of God? Again, uh, this is a phrase that is found very frequently in the Bible. Uh, it actually is an illustration of what it means to be God, to be a consuming fire. And it has to do with the fact of fire from God coming down from heaven. For example, look at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2 says, And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Yeah, this is the two sons of uh, Aaron, uh, a guy called Nadab and Abihu, who the Bible said offered strange fire before the Lord. They were supposed to take the fire off the altar and when they involved the sacrifices, but apparently they bypassed the method that God has stated and offered their own fire on the altar, and the Bible said the fire of God came down. And consume them. So it's, it's really talking about this is where God is a consuming fire. It's now practically expressed in His wrath and His judgment on these two priest sons who, rather than follow the the uh, the guidelines and follow the, the the protocol that the Lord had laid down in the Book of Leviticus, they decide to do their own thing in terms of lighting the altar. If you look at Numbers eleven verse one and three. Numbers 11.1 says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. 
And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And skipping down to verse 3, it says, And he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Classic example again, that God is a consuming fire. He's a holy God. You've got people who are being led in the wilderness, but rather than follow Moses, they're complaining and griping, etc., etc. As a result of that, God sends his judgment in the form of little fire that actually consumed and destroyed a part of the Israelite uh, population. So reminding us of his holiness, reminding us that he's a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment, and we can provoke God's anger to the point where he takes judgment upon us. Then Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 and then verse 35 number 16 now Korah the son of Izar the son of Kohath the son of Levi and Dathan and Abraham the sons of Eliab and the son of Peleth the sons of Reuben took men and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel 250 princes of the assembly famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Okay, uh, if you look at verse 35 now, read that. Verse 35 says... And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Now notice that there are three rebels here. There's a coup against Moses and Aaron. They're trying to undermine his leadership and the fact that God has called him. These are two, this is rival uh, persons, um, like a, I don't want to call it a personality conflict, but they're really undermining Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership. And there's a rebellion that they're now raised up with 250 people in verses 2. Uh, notice that in, in verse 25, when uh, verse uh, 35, God now sends its fire and destroyed the 250 men who were part of the conspiracy. So again, God had appointed Moses as the the leader and Aaron as the as the as the, as the um, priest, and uh, you've got these people trying to un- undermine that leadership. And God acts uh, in holiness and wrath and sends His fire to destroy. But notice again, it's the fire of God that comes down and destroys two hundred and fifty of them. The other three, the earth opened up and consumed them. You didn't read the whole passage, but it has to do with God's judgment, the fire of God. And then, if you look at First uh, Kings eighteen, First Kings eighteen. Verse 36 to 38. All right. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. 
The Lord, He is the God. Again, you've got a, a very good example of God expressing His holiness through sending fire. Remember, this is the great contest in Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And to vindicate who is the true God, uh, Elijah calls upon God to demonstrate who is the real God. And God demonstrates that by actually sending fire from heaven to consume the water, to consume the stones and the altar, to, to wipe out everything, basically. So it's authenticating the prophet Elijah, and it's also uh, reminding uh, Israel that this is a holy God, and, um, and 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 so that has to do with the fire of God vindicating who God is in terms of its holiness. And then one other reference might be worth looking at is Second Kings, uh, one twelve and fourteen, chapter one verse twelve and fourteen. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee thy fifty. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Verse 14. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties and their fifties. Therefore, let my life be precious in thy sight. Yeah, this has to do with a king called Ahaziah. Uh, who was sick, and rather than send to God to find out whether he would recover, he went to the pagan Baal, asked Baal if he could recover. Elijah met the uh, the messenger and told him, go tell this man he's not going to recover, he's going to die. And he got very angry at Elijah, so he decided he's going to arrest uh, Elijah. He sent some people to arrest Elijah. And on three different occasions, they tried to arrest him. And in each case, Elijah called on fire from heaven, and the fire of God came down from heaven and completely destroyed him. Again, authenticating the ministry of uh, Elijah, but also indicating that God is a holy God and he would judge his enemies. So once again, this idea of the fire of God has to do with the judgment of God, the holiness of God, and God judging uh, humankind when the situation demands it. One of those first passages that you were referencing uh, in relation to the fire of God was about the children of Israel complaining and God sending the fire. And that got me thinking, I'm thankful that God doesn't send fire down when I complain. And I think if we're all honest, unfortunately, we all would have to say we have complained uh, at some point uh, about something in our life. And many of us, probably as we've been involved in the work of God, complaining about others involved. Pastor, is it any less serious today to complain about the work of God than it would have been in that time period? Look, the Bible talks, do things without murmuring. And that's complaining. And uh, clearly, uh, the biblical mandate for believers is that we ought to avoid this griping, murmuring spirit. It, it's offensive to God, and it's, it quenches the spirit, and of course, it disrupts good unity among brethren. Uh, I'm thankful that we're living in a day of grace and not law. Under law, yeah. we would have been consumed, uh, but we are living in a, in a day of grace. But we must not abuse that grace. We must see what are the uh, particular virtues that the Bible espouse and those things that the Bible abominates in terms of the Christian life. And one of those things is the, the constant murmuring and complaining. Uh, we ought to learn what the Bible calls contentment. That should be the, our principle. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just as offensive to God as it was in the Old Testament. It's just that he doesn't respond the same way because he's dealing with us under the economy of grace. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 752 
Pastor, we had a listener send in a video, and the title of the video was The Change from Sabbath to Sunday, and here's the message that followed. Greetings, Pastor. Could you please explain this video for me? Listening to you last week, I heard you say that Adventists say it was Constantine who changed the Sabbath, and you said Constantine never changed the Sabbath. The evidence is right before us, and yet still the so-called man of God is still attempting to lead people astray. Lord have mercy. Even the Catholic Church testified that they changed the Sabbath. Yeah, I, I want to thank the the, uh, the person for sending this question and, uh, and and asking me to deal with this subject again. I think the person ought to revisit the previous broadcast dealing with the matter, and I think that he either has misinterpreted me or he's twisted what I've said out of context. Uh, let me make it very clear what I said last time. First of all, let me just say this. The Sabbath is always Saturday. Nobody can change Saturday to Sunday. So it's an impossibility even for a person like Constantine uh, to be able to change the Sabbath because Sunday is Sunday, Sabbath is Sabbath. So there's no way anybody can change the the, uh, the Sabbath to Sunday. That needs to be very clear. The other thing I wanted to point out is that long before Constantine legalized Sunday, uh, he did that in six, 364 uh, AD at the Council of Laodicea. Long before he did that, 250 years before he was even born, uh, the church was already worshiping on Sunday. And all that Constantine did was to endorse what was being practiced by the church and make it legal. Uh, that is what I, I, I try to make it very, very clear. So it's not as though he changed the s- s- Sabbath so that the church can ru- worship on, on, on Sunday. That's not the case. The church was worshiping on Sunday 250 years before Constantine was even born. I want to cite some uh, quotations to verify what I'm saying so that there's no misunderstanding on this matter. And you need factual data, historical data. Let me quote. Uh, first of all, the Epistle of Barnabas, which was written around 100 A.D., now remember that Constantine made that decision in 364 AD. That's 264 years before Constantine even thought of uh, the idea of, of legalizing Sunday as a day of worship. And let me read what uh, in the Epistle of Barnabas it said. Wherefore also we keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. This is a clear, authentic uh, uh, witness of history from one of the church fathers that the church worshipped on Sunday. Uh, Also, the Epistle of Ignatius, uh, this is uh, 107 uh, AD. Remember, again, without 365, 4 AD, that uh, Constantine legalized uh, Sunday. And I want to quote what the Epistle of of, uh, Ignatius says. He says, Be not deceived with the strange doctrine nor with old fables, which are unprofitable. For if we still live according to the Jewish law, we acknowledge that we have not received grace. If, therefore, those we brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observation of the Lord's day. Again, that's the emphasis there. It's not the Sabbath, no, it's not the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And then Justin Martin Uh, 145 to 150 AD, Uh, this is what he said. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold as a common assembly because it's the first day of the week on which God made the world and Jesus our Savior rose from the dead. And then the, the apostolic 
constitution which talks about the church life in the second century and let me quote what they said he said on the day of the resurrection of the lord that is the lord's day assemble yourselves together without fail giving thanks to god and praising him for those mercies that god has bestowed upon you through christ and then Irenaeus, 155 a.d to 202 a.d the mystery of the lord's resurrection may not be celebrated on any other day than the lord's day and on this day alone should be observed the breaking of bread i mean it is so very very clear uh, all of the witnesses of these uh, apostolic fathers these are uh, church fathers that the church met uh, on the first of the week to celebrate the uh, the resurrection of our lord and this goes back from the first century and uh, so my point that i was making which i think the adventists uh, misled in, in the aspect. They're making it seem as though uh, Constantine is the one that created Sunday as a day of worship so the church can worship. That's not the case. All he did was authenticate what the church was already practicing and made it legal. That's the point I was making uh, in the vi- on the last uh, broadcast. So I hope that this brings some clarity to this matter. And I hope that the person really understands what was being said. I can understand um, you're not fully grasping uh, perhaps I didn't maybe phrase it as you would want me to phrase it, but my my main concept was to say that the Constantine did not set Sunday for church to worship. It was actually, uh, he authenticated it and legalized it, but it was being practiced uh, at least 260 years before he was even born. Thank you for sending in that question and for getting clarity on that topic. We appreciate you listening. No matter where you're listening from, no matter how you're listening, whether it's on 1160 AM, on 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org, or maybe you're listening online on Facebook, no matter how you're joining us, we are honored that you have made time out of your Tuesday evening to be part of the program. Again, if you have a question, if you have a suggested topic, if you have a concern, we would love for you to call. You can be put live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. If you'd like to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 268 782 one four five four or if you are joining us on facebook you can comment your questions in the comment section and it'll get passed along to pastor murphy in a timely manner pastor in the day and age that we live there is so much confusion and i it's been a little while since we talked about this on the program you a question yeah. for me? um okay okay i don't okay go ahead uh there's so many confusing different ideas out there and it's been a little while since we talked about this on the program, but the Bible is the one reference point that we can go to that is our our center focus or our recalibration. And I think it's important, especially as we discuss topics like we're discuss- getting ready to discuss tonight, that we know what the Bible says on the particular topic. And that topic we're going to start tonight is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can you start out, as we often do, just by defining terms, what do you mean by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or what are some views? Well, the proper biblical understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit really has to do with the particular ministry 
that the Holy Spirit performs in putting the believer into the body of Christ and uniting the believer to Christ. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's one of the five works of the Holy Spirit that relates to the believer's conversion. Uh, those works are regeneration, uh, indwelling, um, sealing, um, anointing, and that has, and also baptizing. Those are the five major works that take place when a person becomes converted. Uh, and baptism of the Holy Spirit is just one of those ministries that the Holy Spirit has in regard to our salvation. So you're referencing the Bible, and if that's the case, and usually when you hear confusion around this topic, it is among uh, professing believers. But why is it that professing believers can look at Scripture and interpret it uh, so much differently? In other words, why is there such confusion or difference of opinion on this topic? Well, I think the confusion stems from the fact that people have not used the word uh, as it should be used biblically. Uh, I think people confuse the filling of the Spirit with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think it's, it's it's confusion as far as that is concerned. And the other the other thing, I mean, there, there are several reasons why this happens. And one, for example, is that um, people fail to understand that this ministry of the Holy Spirit, baptizing people into the body of Christ, is unique to this church age. This is not something that the Holy Spirit ministered to uh, in the Old Testament. It's not found in the Old Testament. The only reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the New Testament. And if people are not... Uh, People who are, I don't use the word dispensationalist, as people don't understand that God operated a different way in, in different dispensations. I think you can confuse dispensations, confuse uh, events, so that you kind of meshed uh, Old Testament teaching with New Testament teaching. It's like some people talk about the uh, Israel as the church in the Old Testament. Israel was not the church in the Old Testament. The church only came into existence in Acts chapter 2. Now, if they talk about Israel being God's earthly people uh, in the Old Testament, we agree to that. But to confuse the term and use the word church to relate to Israel and then to relate it to the, the New Testament economy, I think it's confusion. And I think that uh, part of the reason for this confusion is essentially the fact that people don't understand that there's a new ministry of the Holy Spirit that relates only to this age, only to the church. The other thing is that uh, I think part of the confusion comes from the overemphasis on water baptism. We put so much emphasis on water baptism, I think there's a confusion sometimes of using uh, Old, uh, New Testament passage D with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and confuse it with water baptism. A classic example of that is, is uh, Romans chapter 6 where Paul taught we were baptized into the body of Christ. There are people who believe that uh, baptism is a sacrament and that literally when you are baptized uh, some miraculous work takes place and grace is imparted to you this is the official position on those who practice uh, infant baptism but again Acts chapter I mean um, Romans chapter 6 is not talking about the water baptism is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we become one with Christ and we are identified with, with him so I think the confusion comes from uh, not drawing a distinction between water baptism and the spirit baptism. The other thing I think that is confusing as well, Nathan, that causes confusion is the association of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with tongues because there are incidents in the book of Acts 
where when the person, when the, the group was baptized with the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. So they see that there's a cause and effect, that whenever there's a baptism, they're speaking in tongues. So they equate the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit with, with tongues. So what we have today is a group of people who teach that a person is not baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, unless he speaks in tongues. So one of the proofs that you've really been baptized with the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. This creates confusion because unless you understand the passage in the book of Acts, one can be led to this conclusion. But there's some clarity that can be made to explain why and what took place. But the other thing, the confusion comes in as well, Nathan, because if a person must speak in tongues when he's baptized, the Apostle Paul makes it clear, all do not speak in tongues. Yet Paul says in Corinthians chapter 12, all believers are baptized in the body of Christ. So you don't build doctrine on a historical event or something happened historically. You build doctrine on biblical teaching. You look at passages that deal with didactic passages. Uh, that, you know, it can be explained why ha- what happened in Acts chapter 2, what happened in Acts chapter 9, and um, later on in the book of Acts as well. Uh, I think it's chapter uh, 10 as well. So I think that, that is part of the reason. So associating the gift of tongues with the... Um, Spirit baptism, I think, creates... uh, And then the other thing is there's a confusion in the English translation. What I mean by that, some people make a distinction between being baptized with the Holy Spirit, which we find in um, Corinthians chapter 12, and being baptized by the Holy Spirit. They think there's a distinction between by (laughs) and with. Okay. Here's the problem. It's the same word in the Greek language. There's no with and there's no by. All words by by. Okay, but if you don't pick that up, try to make a subtle distinction. So people say, "Yeah, you're baptized uh, by the, with the Holy Spirit and you become part, but you're baptized by the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues." So try to make a subtle distinction. Though it, it, it doesn't it only exist in the mind, and because of the translation makes that distinction, people try to make uh, some disparity between the two. But the truth of the matter is, that's not the case. And then. Um, the other thing, confusion comes from the matter of confusing the the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible makes a very, very clear distinction that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can be filled many times. And the word filled there means controlled by the Holy Spirit, a special uh, anointing where he, he controls you. But you are baptized once by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So if you don't make that distinction, you end up confusing you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit several times. So when I want to speak in tongues, I can be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but after a period of time, I need to speak in tongues, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, that is part of the confusion. So those are five uh, factors, I think, that uh, create the confusion. The fact that they're not a clear understanding of the different uh, ages and the dispensations where God acts differently in the Old Testament and New Testament, and baptism refers only to the New Testament, and then the overemphasis on water baptism that confuses the two, and then the matter of this um, associated with speaking of tongues, the difference in translation, and then the confusion between relationship and filling. I think those are five perhaps reasons why there's so much confusion on this subject. You made an interesting statement. You said we should never build doctrine off of a historical occurrence or a historical event. Does that hold true today uh, if it's not necessarily something distant history, but it's something that 
I experienced? Can I shape my doctrine off of that? No, that, that's the dilemma that is currently because people today are not looking to Scripture for teaching. They're looking for experience. And because somebody has had this experience, it means now that they're trying to make that the norm for every believer, but that's not the case. It's just like the, the matter of gifts. Not everybody has the gift of interpretation, the gift of, of tongues. Nobody has the gift of helps, the gift of uh, faith. Uh, these are all separate gifts that are given by the sobbing spirit to individuals. But because I had an experience, and I now want to make that experience a standard for other Christians, I create confusion in the body of Christ. So we got to go to the Bible to see what the Bible teaches on a matter. And because something occurred here, it doesn't mean that's a norm for the Christian. I mean, you, that's again, take the Old Testament. You see that there are a lot of miracles in three different stages in the Old Testament. But every time that God is going to do a work, there's some miraculous thing, and then it goes back to the normal life because we've got to live by faith. We don't live by sight. That's the principle of... So when He begins something new, you see the miraculous, but you must not expect that the miraculous continues because that's not how life is supposed to be lived. Life is supposed to be lived depending on faith in God. If every day is about a miracle, a miracle, a miracle, and God is, is you know, where is, there, where, is, where is faith coming? Because it is something clearly seen. But the Bible says we've got to live by faith. But when He starts something new, You'll always see the miraculous things that happen, and then it goes back to the norm. And I think the problem of trying to demand that this continue and continue and continue, that is not normal in the Old Testament, nor is it normal in the New Testament. And the faith principle that we live by helps to explain why that doesn't happen uh, as a norm for believers. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 809 we are discussing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but if at any point you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Murphy, we would be glad for you to ask it. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. Or you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and waiting for you. You can call 1-268-462-7420. Pastor, as we... Nathan, before yeah. we move on, I'd just like to make a little comment here because, uh, you know, we, we just mentioned this matter of tongues and stuff like that. Uh, I think that uh, the charismatic movement has become the cement that brings a lot of divergent groups together. So you've got... And that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing because the, 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 the what brings people together is speaking in tongues. It's not the matter of Christ and the gospel and preaching and declaring. So you can have uh, charismatic Catholics. You can have charismatic Lutherans. You can have charismatic Mormons. You can have all of them are speaking in tongues. The, the common uh, the common denominator is this tongues movement, and this is where there's a danger of creating an ecumenical system where doctrine doesn't matter. And what matters is the experience. I think that's the dilemma that these kind of things create. And, and and it's very, very clear that what is being done today in churches in terms of tongues is not biblical because uh, the Bible sets forth clearly in the in scriptures the order in which things are supposed to be done. And the idea when you go into church, everybody is speaking in tongues, creating massive confusion. That is abominated in the book of Corinthians chapter 14. So when you see, and by the way, the Holy Spirit has given to the church a manual to guide it in its organization, in its structure, in how it's supposed to operate. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead His people 
contrary to the manual he's given to Scripture. Otherwise, he's contradicting himself. So that's the, that's a, it creates total confusion because if what I'm practicing is contrary to Scripture, who's leading this movement then? But right. my pastor said it's okay. Yeah, well, that's the problem with pastors. Pastors are not authorities. Pastors are, uh, are people who are supposed to be messengers. The authority comes from Scripture. And if a pastor leads you uh, away from the authority of Scripture, uh, he is now functioning uh, not as God intended to be. He's overstepped his authority. And I think somebody ought to hold him in check, or he needs to be defrocked. But the authority is not the, the pastor. The authority is the Word of God. And the pastor only has authority as he follows the Word of God. That's the norm. If we don't go in that direction, we have massive confusion where every pastor now has his own interpretation and can do his own thing and nobody can call them to account. But the Scripture is the authority for the believer, the final authority. But pastor, when I speak in tongues afterwards, I have this high, this spiritual feeling more than I ever have when I listen to one of your sermons. How would you respond to that? <laughs> My 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 response would be the same thing that Paul said in the book of Corinthians. I'd rather uh, sp- um, speak four words with my understanding than a thousand words where I don't understand. So uh, if Paul is certainly, the, 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 I would I would think most people agree that he's more spiritual than us today, basically. But if that's his opinion, that he would rather understand four words than to say a thousand words that he don't understand, that gives you an idea what will spirituality is. Spirituality is about understanding truth because truth is the only thing that can change people's lives. Let me clarify, if not just for you, for the listener, <laughs> that I don't practice speaking in tongues, but <laughs> the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.13. Pastor, you keep referencing that we need to go to scriptures, so I think this is an appropriate time to say what are some scriptures that deal with this topic? Well, the only place you find mention about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in the New Testament. It is not present in the Old Testament. Okay. And it is found in the Gospels. It is found in Acts. And uh, there are other subsidiary references in, in Romans 6, Galatians 3, Ephesians 4, etc. So the best thing to do is let us go to those passages in the, in the New Testament that really deal with this subject. And, and by the way, in all the Gospels, it is really John the Baptist that contrasts his baptism, water baptism for repentance, with the baptism that the Holy Spirit would baptize him, that Jesus would baptize him in the Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew three eleven. Matthew 3.11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost with fire. Again, it's talking about, notice that it's John telling us that he's baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you look at um, Mark 1.8. Mark 1.8 says, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Again, that's John making that same statement. Mark is just confirming there. And then look at Luke 3.16. Luke 3.16 says, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latch of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Again, okay, notice that he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And then one other re- reference, John one thirty three. John chapter 1 and verse number 33 says, And I knew him not, but he sent me to be baptized with water. The same said unto me, 
upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So notice that John is contrasting water baptism, which was his baptism of repentance. He's saying there's another baptism that will come, and that will come when uh, our Lord baptized with the Holy Spirit. The other reference that you find to that is Acts chapter 1, verse 5. This is now where our Lord uh, makes reference to this matter. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Again, that's the Lord having a conversation there with the disciples. For it is a ministry, and uh, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is going to uh, baptize with uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to baptize them. And then the other, when it actually occurred now, now notice that John predicted it. It hadn't occurred yet. In Acts chapter 1, our Lord predicted it's going to happen. It hasn't occurred yet. The question is, when did it really occur? We're given a hint when it occurs in Acts 16, 11. 16, uh, 11, 16, sorry. Acts eleven sixteen 16. says... Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Okay. There's Peter ministering to uh, Cornelius at his conversion. And when he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his family. And Peter says, when, I, when that happened, what happened? I remembered the word the, of the Lord. The, the Lord, it said. So, and then if you go to reading again, uh, you'll find that Peter points out that the same thing that happened to them happened to these Gentiles. In other words, the same experience they had in Acts chapter 2 is what they're having here. That was the part because there would come doubt about the matter of whether or not he should go into the Gentiles. But when he's preaching, the same thing that happened in, in Acts chapter 2 happened here. And he said what happened here is that he was reminded when it occurred that what happened. John said, So the Holy Spirit came clearly here in Acts chapter uh, baptism occurred in Acts chapter six, uh, 11 verse 16. But that refers back to the same experience they had in Acts chapter 2. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually started in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and the apostles preached. Uh, under the Pentecost, we would not have known that had we not had Acts chapter six, eleven, verse sixteen, uh, because it's then we learned that that's when the baptism occurred. Because the same thing they experienced in Acts two happened in Acts eleven. So that now reminds us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts one five, the, uh, the, the, the Lord told the disciples to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. Now we learn that uh, it is hap- actually happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2. That's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came, and that's when believers uh, who believe were now put in the body of Christ. That's when it actually began there. If you read the, the, the context, you read that it happened on the, it came upon the apostles, and the apostles uh, preached. There was conviction. And about uh, 5,000 got saved that day. Uh, And that is when the actual church started. The church started in Acts chapter 2. What's the church? The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. How does the head get connected with the body? It's the Holy Spirit that unites the head with the body. It's a a work that is part of our salvation. When we get saved, we are now placed in the body of Christ, baptized into the body of Christ, as we'll discover in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So, um, 
So this baptism of the Holy Spirit um, was yet future in the Gospels, yet future in Acts 1-5, but did occur in Acts 11. And we learn from Peter that what occurred in Acts 11 occurred in Acts chapter 2. So that is exactly when the baptism of the Holy Spirit started in Acts chapter 2. Uh, now if you go to uh, Corin- uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 3-5, to Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, we're dealing with that in our morning services on Sunday, so I probably have to deal with this section on Sunday morning. But this is a reference not to water baptism. This is a re- that's the confusion we have. People only see baptism in terms of water baptism. But uh, again, when we go to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said there's one baptism. And the one baptism he's talking about is this Holy Spirit baptizing a person into the body of Christ. I, I'll show you that when we come to uh, look at a little bit later. But this is referring to the fact that at, at conversion, uh, the believer is placed in the body of Christ, baptized into the body, becomes united to Christ, so that Christ's death becomes his death, Christ's burial becomes his burial, Christ's resurrection becomes his resurrection. It's talking about the work that God does in the soul of a believer, that the believer is now dead to sin, so he's no longer under the prevailing power and domination of sin. That is the baptism that's being talked about here, and we'll talk about that on Sunday morning. But if you don't make the distinction, and we just think baptism only in terms of water baptism. We've missed the biblical teaching on the matter of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to, Nathan, to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. See, that is exactly what the that's exactly what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. We are put into the body of Christ and united with Christ and become one. He becomes our head, we become his body. It's a spiritual work that takes place in the believer's life. And notice that we are all See, so every single believer is baptized into the body of Christ. Every single believer has experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, but again. We will point out to you later that Paul said not all speak in tongues. And that is where, if we don't make that distinction, we create confusion in the body of Christ. This is a spiritual work of the Holy Spirit, just like the indwelling is a spiritual work, the sealing is a spiritual work, the anointing is a spiritual work, the indwelling is a spiritual work, the baptism of the Holy Spirit also is a spiritual work. But it puts us in the body of Christ where we are connected to our head in a spiritual sense. Okay, If you look at Galatians um, 3.27, Galatians 3.27, and while I'm turning there, let me just mention, Pastor, you mentioned that you'd be covering some of those verses possibly this coming Sunday. If you are in Antigua and are looking for a Bible-preaching church, we are not trying to take you away from a church if you are in a Bible-preaching church, but if you're looking for one, we would love for you to come by and visit Grace Baptist Church on Rowan Henry Street in Upper Gambles, or in Gambles Terrace, uh, 
Sunday morning Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. and the Sunday morning service starts at 10 a.m. And we would love for you to come by and visit. All right, Galatians chapter th- 327. 327 says, For as much, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, that is dealing not with water baptism. That's dealing with the same spiritual work. When you are baptized and put in the body of Christ, you've actually put on Christ. You are now in Christ. That's what the Bible talks about. Uh, we'll talk about in the in Romans chapter 6. So this has to do with the, not the, uh, the water baptism. And, and, and that's part of the confusion. People are confusing the word baptism, only associated baptism with water baptism. And then if you look at Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This one baptism that we are talking about here is the one baptism, which is the spiritual baptism into the body of Christ. If you read the context, the all that is dealing with is spiritual matters, nothing to do with any physical. Read it again and see one hope, one faith, uh, one God, one Lord, one Spirit. It's all spiritual. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the physical uh, baptism that we call uh, the believer's baptism. That's not what he's talking about here. The one baptism we're talking about here is baptism into the body of Christ at our conversion. If that were not true, think about this. You've got sprinkling. You've got pouring, you've got immersion. So there can't be one baptism now, okay? You've got people who baptize people in the name of Jesus only, people baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's not what the Bible is teaching. It's one authentic form of real spiritual baptism. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which takes place when a person believes he's placed in the body of Christ as the work of the Holy Spirit connects the person with Christ so that we share in his death and his resurrection, etc., etc. And then if you look at... Um, um, Colossians uh, 2.12 Colossians 2.12 says Buried with him in baptism wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead Again, all, all, all this has to do with the, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. This is not dealing with the, what we call believer's baptism, which is something completely different. Uh, so we got to, and that's where the confusion comes in, because every time we see the word baptism, somehow in our mind, we're thinking about uh, water baptism. But again, when you begin to understand Corinthians chapter 12, and then you begin to understand Romans chapter 6, it's talking about putting the believer in Christ. No water baptism ever puts a believer in Christ. Water baptism is a uh, public proclamation of an inward change that's taking place in your life. It's not. It doesn't have any grace. It doesn't impart any grace. It doesn't make you any more spiritual when you come out of the, go into the water when you come out. But the Holy Spirit connects you with Christ so that you are now in His body. And that's why you can share in his death and share in his, his resurrection because you're now identified it's called the mystical you and the believer uh, believe in Christ so um, I think the, th- those passages uh, are references to this this work that we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and unless we make those distinctions we'll always end up in some kind of confusion about this matter Throughout the evening, we've referenced a born-again believer or a true Christian. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Who is a born-again believer? 
A born again believer is a person who's come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of his sin, and he sees his need of forgiveness and pardon, and he is pointed to Christ by the Spirit as the only means of forgiveness and pardon, whereby he can have his sins atoned for and be acceptable before God. So a person who repents of the sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is a person who is born again, who is saved. I would like to make it very, very clear. It's not a matter of joining the church. It's not a matter of confirmation, not a matter of baptism. All of these things are what follow uh, conversion. Remember, it's him, he that believes that is, is to be baptized. So uh, the one must believe, be converted, and be regenerated, and then be baptized as an indication of this inward transformation. So we must be very, very clear that people do not equate being born again with being a member of a church or, or going through some other uh, ritual, etc., etc. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Okay, uh, my name is Elderfield Cardinal. Yes, I'm calling from TV Farm. I want to know why is it people still call night day when it's supposed to be night? What's that? I don't fully understand. Uh, re- repeat your question again, sir. Why is it that people still saying that 12 p.m. the day start from 12 p.m. at night? when it's supposed to be night and not day. So why why do people say that uh, the the day starts when it's still just minutes after midnight? And, and they call it day. Uh, I guess I'm as puzzled as you are. <laughs> I, I guess think this is uh, maybe um, something that is... I, I really don't have an explanation for myself, to be honest with you. I just normally go over the flow when it comes to these kind of things. It's like, uh, if, I might, if I might say this, it's like when you're doing electronics, uh, they still have the, what is called the conventional method of, of electronics, where the current is supposed to go from the positive, when in actual fact they know it goes to the negative. It's just a convention thing that they've had for so many years that it continues. And I, I guess that's, that's, that's what it is here in the Western world that this is something that's been established and, and that's the way it, it thinks. But uh, to try to undo that and unravel it now, I'm not sure if we can change that. I guess this must be a governmental thing uh, based on, on some form of science, I would suggest. But there's no explanation why we do certain things. It doesn't make sense. Uh, but it's just part of normal life. And I think to change it creates more confusion because people have got accustomed to it. Yeah, thank you very much, Codrington. I hope that answered your question. I've got a lot of background noise. Uh, uh, my phone is not hearing you too well, you know, but um, I understand. I kind of, um, I don't understand it too well, but um, because my phone is kind of low. You can hear me well? Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. can hear you well, yeah. The other thing yeah, I would say, Mr. the other thing I would say is that, you know, the Jews, the Jews uh, start from uh, 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock. That's the Jewish calendar. This must be the Gentile calendar. A lot of this goes back to Roman times when they split the, the, uh, the time frame. Uh, so it is just a tradition that we fall into. And uh, I, I agree with you. It doesn't make sense that it is dark, and yet they call it day. And then when it is day, they call it dark. I understand that. It's sometimes kind of humorous, the things that we do. But that is part of the system, how it's uh, organized. And I think to change that now uh, it creates more problems than if we just follow with the norm. God bless you. So, um, so you believe that um, the, the, the people around them who is taking the time from um, uh, 
from the after 12 and it is still dark and you still say how they don't say that it's day when it's still dark that's what I want to answer yeah I, I uh, again I don't think it's a matter of uh, when it's dark or when it's a thing I just think it's a system that was put in place to define the, the limits of time and uh, again there's no rationale for it that I can think about I would like to think that the day would start when I can see light but again, this is a system that was put in place, and I don't know the rationale behind it, and I don't have an answer for it. It's just one of those things that uh, we have been brought up in traditionally, and I suspect it, it will continue. Thank you very much for the call, Codrington. Thank you for listening. Maybe, and I don't have the answer, but maybe the distinction is between day and daylight. Uh, daylight is when it gets light. But, uh, Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Antigua. Good night. Ecclesiastes 12.13 states that we should keep the commandments along with several books. What is the purpose of the fourth commandment? Ecclesiastes 12.13. Let's see. Uh, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That's Ecclesiastes 12. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with the passage. I mean, that's Solomon's conclusion after he'd explored every avenue to find satisfaction and meaning, and then he realizes that there's no satisfaction. And I think he tries seven different things, and uh, they didn't work out, and he comes to one conclusion. Having looked at all of life, he says, you know, the, I come to the conclusion that things to fear God and keep his commandments. And what that really uh, is, is saying in Jess is that to fear God and live by his word. That, that is what it's saying. Uh, remember that Solomon is writing under the Old Testament economy where the law was uh, given to the Jews and they were living according to the law. We're now living on a new dispensation called the dispensation of grace. And if you read... Uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 3, you discover that the handwriting of the law had been abolished in the sense it's been set aside. We are now living according to grace. We are no longer under the economy of law. We are under the economy of grace. However, under the economy of grace, God has taken nine of those ten, ten commandments and made them part of the new economy. So you find that those nine commandments are in the uh, under under grace is still part of the, the Christian system. The one that is not mentioned, not repeated, is the fourth commandment because that was a day that was celebrated under the Testament law and it was a covenant between God and Israel. It not only symbolized the creation story, but it was also symbolized the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. You'll find that later in the book of Exodus. We are now living in a new dispensation where Christ has fulfilled the law for us and God is now dealing with us on the basis of grace. And in that economy of grace, we are now honoring the Lord's resurrection. When he is, uh, it's resurrection on the, on the first of the week. That's where we worship. Um, we find that in the book of Acts, uh, the Holy Spirit comes on the first of the week uh, to start the church. We find also in the book of Acts where Paul meets with the believers uh, that they meet on the first day of the week. And, of course, you remember the guy that fell down. Then we come to the book of Corinthians. We find that the believers are to meet and collect the offering on the first day of the week. I mean, it is so much repeated in the New Testament that it's very, very clear a new pattern has begun to develop. Then we move into church history. 
in the first century. And I just read uh, several extracts on the uh, history that showed you that the church followed this same pattern of observing Sunday as a Lord's Day. So the answer is that the Sabbath was there under the economy of law, and it served its purpose for the Jewish people. We are now under the economy of grace, and the Lord has, you know, God has a right to change systems. He had promised that it would be a new covenant in the book of Jeremiah, and we understand what that new covenant is. And what he's done, he's extracted the moral principles from the law, and he's put those under the, this, this in grace. So we expect it to be not to covet. We expect it not to commit adultery. We expect it to honor our parents, etc. The one commandment that's not given in the New Testament, in any of the epistles, is the matter of what they worship. As a matter of fact, we are given Christian liberty in that regard in the book of Colossians and the book of Romans. Let every man be fully persuaded in his mind as to what they to worship. That is the kind of freedom we have in Christ in terms of what they... But the church, uh, from its very inception, right in back to the, the all history, has recognized the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, when the Lord resurrected from it, because it begins a new creation. The old Sabbath celebrated the old creation. The new day now uh, celebrates the new creation. And then the book of Psalms said, this is the day that I have made, uh, referring to when Christ was resurrected and taken to be with the Father. So the church, uh, throughout history, has recognized a, a new phenomenon, and to celebrate the uh, uh, the church and the start of the church and our Lord's resurrection, and that's why we worship on Sunday. However, brother, I might say this to you: if you are convinced that you should worship on the Sabbath, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna condemn you. If you think you're gonna worship on Sunday and that will save you, I will condemn you then because no Sabbath worship is gonna save anybody. Okay, you're not saved by keeping the Sabbath; you're saved by your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So let's be very, very clear: there are certain Baptists in America that are called Seventh Day Baptists. They worship on on the Sabbath. Nobody questions that. I don't debate that. That's their conscience. But to impose that on me now is where the problem comes in, uh, because I don't feel uh, convicted on this matter, and the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts me, not any person uh, outside of the Holy Spirit. But the church has recognized Sunday as a day of worship because it celebrates our Lord's resurrection, which also begins the new creation, the new birth. Pastor, if you were talking to someone and they said, do you keep the Ten Commandments, how would you answer that? I would say to most people, in principle, in spirit, I keep the Ten Commandments because all the commandments that we've got, uh, again, even even the, 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 if you've got to understand that there's difference between the the um, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. For example, we fulfill the fourth commandment. Uh, in a different way. We fulfill the spirit of the first command, which is one day set aside for the Lord. <laughs> that day that we set aside is the Lord's day. So we are actually fulfilling that spirit that we are acknowledging God and worshiping God on one day. God wanted one out of seven. On the Old Testament economy, it was the Sabbath. Now in this doom dispensation, we take Sunday and we give. So in spirit, we are honoring my parents um, again they're dead now but again that, um, not coveting, uh, coveting um, not committing adultery all of those things are what I practice in spirit uh, and, and of course I must say not just in spirit as well because I don't engage in those activities itself but I would say to you that all of the principles in the Ten Commandments are actually practiced in the, in the church it's just that it's a spirit rather than legal 
uh, written uh, letter of the law that the church doesn't follow in terms of that fourth command because it has no clear command in the Old Test in the New Testament about worship on the Sabbath and it does have the liberty that Paul talks about in Colossians that every man be fully persuaded in his mind as to what day he worships on that is the liberty a Christian has and we uh, the New Testament is not contradicting the Old Testament it's just a higher uh, uh, different dispensation different uh, covenant that we are under today and we don't, don't believe that the Old Testament should be imposed on the believers. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 15, this was this matter very clearly, where they wanted to put back the law of Moses on the Gentile church. And uh, they had a debate, they had a, a convention, they discussed the matter. And one of the things they say, you know, why put this yoke that not even our fathers could fulfill the yoke? Why put it on the Gentiles? And then they only laid out about four principles that they'll put on the Gentiles, which are the, don't eat things offered to idols, don't eat things that are sacrificed that have blood in it, and then avoid fornication, etc., etc. Those are the things that were put on the Gentiles' church, but not the Mosaic law. You are listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And if you have a question, we would love for you to interact with us and ask that question. Thank you to those who have been calling in or have been sending in their questions. If you'd like to call in, you can call 1-268-462-7420. If you would like to send in your question via WhatsApp or text, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Here's a question that has just come in via WhatsApp. Good evening. Is there a difference between being baptized in the name of the Father Son and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit and being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not remember the scriptures that speak about those two right now. Could you please cite these two scriptures? Thank you. And I've got two references here. Matthew twenty eight nineteen says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And Acts 19.5 says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah. I think the norm, the standard that we have is what our Lord gave us, the mandate in in, uh, Matthew chapter 28. We're told very clearly to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and we're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the practice uh, of the church is to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't differentiate uh, just baptizing the Spirit. There are certain religious groups that just baptize in the name of Christ, but that is completely um, contradictory to what we are told in Matthew chapter 28. And by the way, the fact that is mentioned there in um, Acts chapter 19 that they baptized them in the name of Christ doesn't mean that they didn't, didn't use the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit because in particular, if you notice the emphasis there in the context, uh, these people that had been met, that Paul met there at Ephesus, there were um, John's disciples who were, had sat under the ministry of John, uh, were baptized by the baptism of repentance, hadn't learned about Christian baptism, hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit baptizing people. Paul began to uh, uh, preach to them. They began to understand that, uh, hey, wait a minute, who is this Christ? Remember, John preached Christ, but they had left Palestine and had gone back to Ephesus 
uh, and had not heard of all the details about Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. So they had this, they were believing in the Messiah that he would come, but they didn't understand that the Messiah had fully come and had fulfilled whatever is there. So that became mandatory now that Paul uh, rebaptized them, even though they were baptized by John, because that was not Christian baptism. And the fact that the mentions made, made of Jesus uh, doesn't mean necessarily that they didn't use the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because clearly Matthew chapter 28 tells us that what needs to be done. So I think sometimes in trying to make um, subtle distinctions, I think they missed the whole the whole point uh, because one is mentioned, and that was mentioned because the emphasis there has to do with the Messiah has come, the Messiah has died, and the Messiah has brought about this new life, so they are baptized in his name. But that doesn't mean that they excluded the Father and the Son, even though it's not mentioned in the passage. I could I could I could I could have could make certain statements that uh, three go together, but I just mentioned one because that's the one that's meant that's put, that is uh, that's important at that point in time. But I didn't give you all the details that I did the other three things. But the, the Matthew chapter twenty eight is the standard that the church follows when it comes to baptism, that people should be baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the proper means of baptism. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.43. We have 18 minutes left in the program. There is still time for you to send in your questions. If you have a question tonight, you can send it via WhatsApp or text one 782 1454, or you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and waiting for you. 1-268-462-7420. Thank you again to those who have been sending in their questions. We appreciate your interaction. If you haven't already encouraged someone to tune into That's Truth, we don't have a lot of time left tonight, but go ahead and send a WhatsApp or call a friend. Say, hey, tune your radio dial to 1160 a.m., 92.3 FM or online at www.radiolighthouse.org or you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page for this program and you can join us. We would love for you to continue to share with others and encourage others to tune into the program. We are talking tonight about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor Begina, by defining what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is from Scripture, and why there's so much confusion about it. And then we are talking about what scriptures deal with the passage. Do you have any other passages you want to bring to our attention? No, I think I think I've pretty much um, given most of the passages that relate to this matter, so I think we could probably move on to the third question, maybe. Who are the agents of the spirit of the baptism? Uh, there are two agents. There's a primary agent and uh, a direct agent and an indirect agent. Let me explain what I mean by that. In Corinthians twelve thirteen, if you read there, uh, I think we've read that already, but it might be good to repeat it. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, "For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, whether we be, whether we have been all made to drink into one Spirit." Right. So it's talking about the Holy Spirit, who's the primary agent. He's the one that does the baptizing work. But remember in uh, Matthew three eleven, Luke one. Um, Luke three sixteen and Mark one eight and John one thirty three. Remember who who we're told would baptize with the Holy Spirit was who? Remember what John said? What, what no, Jesus, Jesus, yeah, would, Jesus would be yeah. the one. So he is the the indirect agent because okay. the the uh, he's the ultimate agent because remember he said he would send the Spirit. 
uh, so this promise that he's the one that will do the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But the so he is the ultimate agent is Christ, but the primary immediate agent is the, the Holy Spirit. So there are two people involved because uh, to fulfill the promise that John that was made by John the Baptist that the, that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, uh, it must mean that he is involved in the matter. So he's the one that promises also in, in uh, John chapter sixteen that he'll send the Spirit. And part of that work of sending the Spirit, he said, you know, unless I go to my Father, the Spirit will not come. But when he comes, uh, he will do certain things. And one of the things that he would do is that he would be baptized. So the, there's really the, the ultimate agent is Christ, the one who sends the Spirit. The Spirit is the immediate agent that performs this work of uh, baptism of the individual. So two, the, the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is involved in this whole matter of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is a question that I have been wanting to ask you all night, but I was waiting my turn. <laughs> um, when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit begin? Well, again, what we there are several things that we 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 uh, that helps us to understand when that begins. Uh, if you look at Colossians one eighteen for just a moment, Colossians one eighteen says. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So notice that it makes it very clear that there's a head and there's a body, right? And the two of them are connected, okay? Uh, how does that happen, the, the head get connected? To the, how does the body get connected to the head? Again, go back to Corinthians chapter 12, 13, you'll find the connection there. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, "For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body." Again, that's how the body gets connected to the head. That's that's the whole thing there that is trying to, to how we become part of the body of Christ. It is through the connection of the Holy Spirit, and that brings us back to what we looked at in Acts chapter eleven. Read Acts chapter eleven, fifteen to seventeen. Acts eleven fifteen to seventeen says. And as I begin to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Verse 17 says, For as much then as God gave us them like the gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Same thing. That's what I was trying to say. That, that Ben Peter sees when he's preaching, the Holy Spirit baptizes Cornelius and his family, uh, comes up on the Holy. Uh, he says the same experience he, they had is the same one we had in Acts chapter 2. So clearly, coming back to when it begins, it began in Acts chapter 2 when the church was formed. So a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is then the Holy Spirit comes and does that ministry of connecting the believer with the, uh, and making part of the body so he connects to the head who is Christ. So baptism of the Holy takes place at conversion. It is one of the five works that takes place at conversion, including sealing, including the anointing, uh, including in dwelling. Uh, it is just one of those particular works, but it, con it occurs at conversion. That's why uh, we will point out later, uh, Nathan, that uh, people who teach that, you know, you're saved and now you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit so you can speak in tongues, are actually not understanding what the Bible is teaching on this matter. And this will become very clear as we go on later in dealing with the subject. So can a person be a true Christian or a born-again believer, whatever phrase you want to use there, 
and not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, read read Corinthians twelve thirteen again. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. I'm going to have this memorized. First, by the time. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Read it. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So it's impossible for a person to be a true Christian and not be baptized into the body of Christ. That's the point. All believers have experienced the 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 baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just like all believers experience the sealing of the Holy Spirit the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All believers share in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that occurs after conversion. It occurs at the moment of conversion, like sealing does and indwelling does and anointing does. And that is a biblical principle that is there. Um, so it's impossible for a person to be a Christian and not be uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit. So there's not, there's not just a few that have been baptized no, by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So if I'm having a discussion with a co-worker tomorrow and they're saying, do you speak in tongues? You don't speak in tongues. You haven't experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What verses would you suggest that I go to? But again, we will, we will explore that in the okay. book of Acts because we're going to come to see that the initial encounter when the Holy Spirit baptized the believers in Acts chapter 2, what happened? They spoke in tongues. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was a sign. Right. And then when they went to um, Cornelius's house and the baptism came again, they were speaking in tongues. Yep. And then when um, Paul met the people at Ephesus and the baptism came, they were speaking. So what people happen is, you see, they, they connect with the baptism with the speaking in tongues. So every time there's baptism, they say, hey, they were speaking in tongues. Therefore, the sign that you have, filled, that you have baptism is that you speak in tongues. And that is where they don't understand the historical context. Let me explain to you, Nathan, what happened. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2, because remember, by the way, that Peter is the one that were given the keys to the kingdom. Yep. He's the one to open the door to the to the Jews. He's the one to open the door to the Samaritans. He's the one to open the door to the Gentiles. So that's why he was the one preaching at Pentecost. Correct. And that's why he was the one at Samaria and the one at um, Cornelius as well because he was given the keys. Okay? Interesting. Yeah. But the other thing is this. In the Old Testament, and when you go into Corinthians chapter 14, you'll find that Paul talks about the Lord said he would speak to his people by the language of a tongue they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. We'll be dealing with that. That's why there was the language there in Acts chapter 2. It was a, a new dispensation. God had promised that one day He would send His Spirit and He would speak in a language that the people didn't understand so they would understand it's a new work. So that's why at Pentecost, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, there was the speaking in tongues. But here's the problem. So if I have the Holy Spirit come and baptize and some, this group speaking in tongues, what happened now when you come to the, the Gentiles and you have the baptism and no speaking tongues? There's a difference. The same event has to occur, so there's no difference between the body of Christ. So what happened in Acts chapter 2 has to happen in Acts chapter 10 because it's the same church. You don't want to have a Gentile church and a Jewish church. So the phenomenon in Acts chapter 2 was there because it was prophesied it would happen, but also as part of the Gentile church, it also happens there. And then when you come to Acts chapter 19, where Paul comes to Ephesus, and these are... These are Jews of the diaspora. They had been in Israel. They sat under John's ministry. Uh, they believed what John had taught, but the Messiah had not come as yet. They were looking for the Messiah. They go back to Ephesus, and they, now Paul is preaching and talking about this Jesus who died. They said, well, you know, this Jesus. We know John's baptism. He said, now he began to explain the Messiah. They are now rebaptized as a Christian way. And what the Holy Spirit came home, and guess what? 
They two speak in tongues. It's three different things that are happening here. So the same phenomenon, so that there's not this church, that church, people saying, well, you know, we had a better experience than you had, and you end up with total confusion. It is part of the transitional period in the church where the encounter was part of a prophecy, but to make sure there's no division in the church and everybody understand that there's the same church, they all have the same experience. But here's the problem. Because this happened, now they're saying, every time a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit, they must speak in tongues. But you notice that only at Pentecost, with those people there, all of those people didn't have to be speaking tongues. It's only the apostles that spoke in tongues, because that was a sign to them, right? When the Holy Spirit came. so And when the 3,000 got saved, they didn't speak in tongues. They didn't speak in tongues, because it was an experience that um, was not needed to be repeated for the Jews. Same thing with Cornelius. It's not a re- need to be repeated for the, the Gentiles as well. So at conversion, this Holy, the Holy Spirit baptizes. But at the initial point, because of the prophecy that God had said in Isaiah about speaking to Israel in a different tongue, it occurred. So that is why the Lord allowed it to happen in those different places to confirm it is one church and there don't need to be any division. You don't have something that the Jews don't have and the Gentiles don't have or the Samaritans don't have. They all have the same uh, church. Okay. WhatsApp question that has just come in from Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. If a person represents and accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, repents and accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, but was not baptized by water, will that person be accepted by God Almighty? Well, again, it goes back to the question of what is the purpose of baptism? Did the thief on the cross get baptized? No. No, he didn't get baptized. Baptism is a matter of obedience, okay? That's what it is. And there are people who can be uh, make a decision. What if the person dropped dead after they made the decision that we didn't get baptized? We're going to take them, the dead person on baptizing because baptism has some kind of efficacy? Absolutely not. Um, so it, baptism has nothing to do with conversion. It is something that follows conversion. It's a matter of obedience. But you can have disobedient believers who, there are some people who have not been baptized for years because, number one, they see so much hypocrisy in the church sometimes. They say, you know, I, I'm a believer, but I don't want to go through this whole process. So they, 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 Not that they should, but they do. But we must understand there's no saving efficacy in baptism. Uh, you know, if that if baptism could save or had anything to do at all with person's salvation, can you imagine Paul saying in Corinthians, I thank God I did not baptize only two of you and I didn't baptize let people see you baptize in my name. If it was essential to salvation, the Apostle Paul could never make those kind of uh, bland statements. But those are statements that Paul made. We gotta get away from the idea of the churches that teach baptismal regeneration. Uh, whether it be the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, or sometimes even the Presbyterian Church, uh, that the, you know baptism washes away original sin, that has nothing to do with washing away sins. Only the blood of Christ Jesus can wash away sins. Baptism is something that follows believing. Uh, when you believe, you want to be baptized because you want to show to the world by your baptism that you are now separating yourself from the world. And you're going to live on to the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, if a person is saved and didn't get baptized, they're going to glory. They still let me say it has nothing to do with with uh, um, any kind of works that is done or any kind of of grace that's imparted through baptism. Let me ask that question from a little different perspective: not whether the person will be accepted by God, but can a believer who has repented and accepted Christ as their Savior, but has chosen not to be baptized yet? Can they be right with God, knowing that they're supposed to be baptized, but they haven't? 
Well, it's a matter of a believer who does that clearly is being disobedient. So clearly there's a matter between that believer and the Lord. That, but again, I don't know the motive that the person may, may have. Uh, for example, I can see somebody not wanting a pastor, a particular pastor to baptize him. They might have had some experience or learned something about that pastor and believe that he's not really an authentic person. Therefore, they want they, they, so I could see somebody waiting uh, to a proper time to be baptized. I can see that happening. If that's the motive, I think that that, that would be taken to allowance. But uh, it uh, is a scriptural command that those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ should be baptized. That is a clear command given in the scriptures. And believers who uh, do not follow through on that clearly are living disobedient life. But disobedience doesn't put a person in hell. Uh, it deals with divine chastening. That is what will take place. How soon after salvation or conversion should a person be baptized? Well, if you follow the New Testament norm, a person should be baptized after they have put their faith and trust in Christ. But the modern situation is such that a lot of people need clarity on what really took place on conversion. And so the norm is a pre-baptismal class to make sure they understand what the gospel is about, what they've done. Uh, that's the norm. But the biblical norm is that when you believe, you should be baptized almost immediately. You're listening to That's Truth, and I'm glad that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening. Be sure that you tune in next week when, Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen first, we will continue this discussion on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you have had this discussion with a co-worker, a family member, a friend from church, and you feel that they would benefit from it, encourage them to tune in next Tuesday evening at 7.30 for our discussion. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.